But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your enemy and hate your you shall love your neighbor rather and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is God's words for us today. Spending some time talking about the word or the law of God today. If you've spent any time with non-Christians in your life, you will quickly find out that Christians are often known for what we can't do. 
The world often hears our message and they simply see boundaries and lists of rules and a lack of joy and a fear of doing the wrong thing. Who would want to join this movement of ours if our vision is completely, don't do anything that makes this life interesting. And there's some truth to this objection. Christians are often known for what we're against and not what we're for. How could we argue with Scripture when itself is full of prohibitions? The Ten Commandments are, most of the Ten Commandments start with, you shall not. The Old Testament law is filled with all kinds of restrictions about what not to do in worship, about what foods you're not allowed to eat, what people you should avoid, even what clothes you're not allowed to wear. And because of this emphasis, many Christian circles fall into the subculture of not doing things, of avoiding things. So you have families choosing homeschooling so their kids won't mingle with those public school heathen. Christians start their own movies in order that they wouldn't have any of that gross stuff in it, you know, like a believable plot. <laughs> they want movies that just have positive, uplifting messages. We start our own businesses and encourage one another only to buy from one another so we don't accidentally give our money to any of those bad guys out there. And our politics, the world hears our politics and simply hears, don't help babies, or don't help women, don't help poor people, don't help immigrants, and don't let anyone on my lawn. It's easy to see how this can happen, though, when the Bible is full of prohibitions. And the Jews let it happen to themselves for a rather good reason. They had been exiled, taken out of their land because they failed to keep the law of God. So they doubled down on the thou shalt nots. And then now here comes Jesus giving a list of laws and saying, as Jake preached last week, do not think that I have come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Not one iota or dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So perhaps we should be known for what we are against. But then Jesus corrects this major misunderstanding that the Jews and many Christians today still have. The point of the law wasn't to set apart the good guys from the bad guys. We read at the beginning, Psalm 19, that says the law of the Lord revives the soul. It's good for us. It sets forth a positive message for us. It's not just a list of rules to regulate negative behavior, but it points us to deeper principles of the heart that demand positive concern and action on behalf of one another. Yet when we really understand the law for what it was designed to be, it shouldn't leave us feeling like now we've got an achievable plan for a, a good society. But really it's a code that leaves everyone feeling like this is out of reach, no matter how disciplined you are. The way Jesus expounds on the law should leave each one of us feeling, who could possibly do this? If this is the standard of goodness to get into heaven, everyone is doomed. And from that place, we are ready to hear the word and the righteousness that God brings to us. Let's pray. God, we all approach your rules, your laws from a different perspective. Some in our self-righteousness think we can do it. 
And we try to prove to the world how great we are by listing all the good things we do. Others feel the weight of condemnation. God, show us as you reveal your word to us today the beautiful, perfect righteousness that you have in store for your people. Amen. As you surely noticed when Mike read the passage for me, I asked Mike to do it for me so you wouldn't hear my voice over and over and over because it's a long passage. It's quite a long section filled with individual sections that at first might not seem related. And Jake and I debated breaking up the text into a sermon on murder and a sermon on adultery and divorce and so on. But as we considered that, we were concerned that we might not be able to see the whole forest of Jesus' message by looking at the trees, individual trees. All of these sections tie together to make one point, each part essential to Jesus' argument. And here that main point I'm taking simply from the very last verse, verse 48. Be perfect as your Father, Heavenly Father is perfect. We saw that Jesus just really upset the apple cart of the Pharisees when he suggested that the blessed life is meekness, is poverty, is suffering and persecution. The Pharisees would have thought, no, they're receiving the curses they deserve. And Jesus says, no, that is the blessed life. And now he comes and tells them, pushing them even further out of the boat, tells them that their supposed adherence to the law isn't even close to sufficient enough to earn what they think they deserve. And so the outline of my message is to go through each of these six interpretations of the law from Jesus, but to do it through two different lenses, related lenses. First, tying back to verse 20, I want to go look at this law from the idea of the exceeding righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. And then after we're done, go back through it hopefully much more quickly even, with a new set of lenses, seeing how the law actually reveals to us the perfection of our Heavenly Father. So first look at the right, exceeding righteousness of this law, and then the Father's perfection. So before we jump into the text, let's just look at verse 20 again, which Jake covered last week. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never Enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a shocking statement. The Pharisees and the scribes were the most holy people on the planet. They always, they gave their entire lives to serve at the temple. They kept religious order. These guys memorized the entire first five books of the Old Testament. Even the boring parts of Leviticus. You could see their piety on display on every street corner. If these guys weren't making it into Jesus' kingdom, nobody was. Yet Jesus intends to pile it on, say it's even worse than you think. So the best way to read this collection of laws isn't to say, oh, that's some way that we should assemble our church or build a Christian society. No, we need to connect verses 20 all the way to 48. The exceeding righteousness that's required to get into heaven is absolute godly perfection. And as soon as Jesus says that, we are all condemned. No matter what laws he expounds on in between. 
So these six laws don't lay out for us the rules of a new Christian society. They're not establishing contract law, dictating how we should relate to one another in the world, or even just giving us godly examples of how to relate to your neighbor. These laws are intended to move us from the supposed righteousness of the Pharisees far beyond and to gaze upon the righteousness of God. So with that in mind, let's begin our journey through these six segments, starting with the first one in verses 21 to 26. Now again, we could make an entire sermon out of each of these sections, so I'm probably going to leave out a lot of what you're hoping I'll answer, and we'll have to have those conversations another time because I don't want us to lose sight of the main point. So I'll just read the first couple verses of each section. Verses 21 and 22. You've heard it said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So each of these sections begins with the same formula, something like you have heard, and then contrasting that with Jesus following saying, but I say to you, the you have heard is bringing up an interpretation of the Old Testament. Jesus isn't saying this is exactly what the law meant in the Old Testament. Simply, this is what you've heard as you've gone around your Jewish culture right now. He doesn't say Moses says, he says, you have heard. And here, now that we dive into the law, we can see that the law was so much more than requiring external obedience to some regulations. Jesus brings up here the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. But he goes deeper into the heart, showing that murder doesn't just pop up out of nowhere. Someone walking down the street going, ah, kill you, you're dead. It just doesn't happen. That started long before that with an angry heart. The seeds of murder are when that fool cuts you off on the highway and you get really frustrated with him. Or the envy you feel when someone else gets something that you wanted. Or that pride you feel when some idiot gets in your way and does something stupid. When those feelings arise in you, pride and envy and anger, it's at that moment that you really don't care if God struck that person dead. John Owen once wrote regarding how sin seems to start small and get bigger. Sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, might it have its own course, it would go out to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism, might it grow to its head. All of that lurking inside every single one of us. But as Jake taught us before worship, God's common grace thankfully holds us back and restrains us. But as I read that text from John Owen, I thought about Sean Park's sermon to us last summer about anger in Ephesians 5 and how we shouldn't let the sun go down on our anger. Reminded of that great imagery he used, how Anger's like this cancer cell. It only takes one, one cancer cell to replicate and grow and suddenly takes over the whole body and destroys your life. So is sin and anger. 
But instead of simply telling us what to avoid in our lives, Jesus gives us an example of how this law was actually supposed to be more than a prohibition, but a positive command. We should be on the offensive against sin. As John Owen once again said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. So related in this example of to pride and anger, Jesus says the solution isn't to cut things out of your life, but to always be seeking peace with others at all costs. Find out ways to restore broken relationships. Don't ever let that bitterness simmer beneath the surface. Do something about it. In fact, he says we should seek out restoration before we even come to worship. If anyone has something against us, take care of it now before in either one of us the seeds of bitterness grow to something far worse. It's our duty to pursue reconciliation. So the heart of the matter isn't simply don't kill people. It's pursue peace with others at all costs. Let's take a look at the next law and see how it makes a very similar point. Verses 27 and 28. You've heard it said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, we see that contrast of you have said and, or you have heard, but I say. And this time Jesus recalls the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. Now that law seems simple enough, doesn't it? Don't have sex with anyone you're not married to. But as we've seen with so many laws, the, our sinful hearts are always seeking out loopholes. We use the law to justify ourselves, not to show us God's perfection. And that's what the Pharisees were really good at. They found ways to outwardly keep the law and make it look like they're really good. So people would praise them thinking, oh, wow, you guys are so holy. But if there was any ever question about Maybe they're getting kind of close to breaking the rules. They had a nice, easy way of shifting the blame to someone else or covering it up so they couldn't be found guilty. But Jesus doesn't let them off the hook. Similar to murder, he says that adultery doesn't just happen out of nowhere. There are hundreds of internal decisions that led up to that point. It was the extended gaze at that beautiful coworker or that secret search for something alluring that no one else could find out about. These are the first steps on the path of adultery. Now, just a a bit of a warning, as some people make the mistake of saying lust equals adultery, or hate and anger equals murder. But Jesus isn't equating them. The, uh, excuse me. They don't have the same consequences. The end of it, murder, is far worse than the hatred that happened. The end of adultery is far worse than lust. So Jesus isn't establishing a new law code that we should go about and start judging one another's motives, that we have a new thought police. He's not saying that the earthly consequences of internal sin is the same as external. The point is simply as, The Lord said to Samuel when he was choosing a new king for Israel and rejected David's brothers, he said, Do not look upon his appearance or the height of his stature, 
because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks upon the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. So in our world, with our human limitations, we do the best we can in our courts to make judgments on outward appearance, outward behaviors. That's all we have to go off of. But Jesus is warning that just because someone looks like they've got it together on the outside doesn't mean they're pure on the inside. In fact, in God's courtroom, the judgment starts within before even touching the outward behaviors. But again, this isn't simply a rule about not doing something, but striving for something greater. So Jesus uses this extreme example of cutting out your eye or cutting off your hand. And it seems again like he's saying, cut something off in order to avoid sin. But that's not really the point. You can still lust without a hand or without an eye. That's not going to solve the problem. The, the point he's trying to make is that you should be so focused on righteousness, on holiness, so committed to your spouse that you will do whatever it takes to keep your eyes right on the prize. Don't let your heart go elsewhere. No external behavior can possibly change your heart into that perfection that God requires. Let's, uh, we better move on. I'll never get through this list. We've only gotten through two out of the six. So we'll speed things up a bit. The next section is related to the previous one, verses 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, we could spend a couple of hours going through this section, but I don't want to present to you all the different opinions on divorce and remarriage and which is right and which one I believe. And um, that would help that would get us lost in the weeds again. I simply want to summarize the topic a little bit just to show how it fits into Jesus' point. So the problem here, again, is that the Pharisees are finding loopholes in the law. There's nowhere in the Old Testament, there's one place, sorry, one place in the Old Testament where the law addresses divorce. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. And it's a rather confusing passage, which really isn't about legislating how divorce should work and when it when it's okay to get divorced, it's really just acknowledging that it happened, someone is vulnerable, and here's a law that try to protect that vulnerable person so they're not falling through the cracks. It wasn't meant as a law to allow breakups of marriage, but simply to help protect vulnerable people. But the Pharisees, as they like to do, made up a whole new set of laws regarding this one little phrase in Deuteronomy. There was one party of Pharisees who kind of taught that if there was ever adultery, you were required to get a divorce, not just allowed, you had to get a divorce. And then there was this other party that said, well, if a husband finds anything that he doesn't like about his wife, if her meal wasn't very good yesterday, if she put potatoes in the blender and it became all gooey, well, she's got to go. 
I can't have gooey potatoes. Now, similar to the last concern about lust and adultery, the Pharisees were finding ways to look like they were good, but still get what they wanted. They were using the law to abuse others. But Jesus says they're both wrong. Divorce should never happen. When you leave a marriage and start another one, it introduces so many different complications. Anyone who's experienced divorce in some way or another can testify to how complicated and painful it gets. That shouldn't happen. But Jesus gave the one exception, the grounds for adultery, simply acknowledging what was already true. One party had broken the covenant. They'd abandoned the covenant. So writing a certificate of divorce was simply a way to free the other person to say, go ahead and find a new life. But this doesn't mean that we force people into divorces or we find reasons to get a divorce. Again, they twisted the law, not using it as a way to bring life, but condemnation upon people. Marriage is supposed to be a blessing that lasts forever. Again, the Pharisees are ignoring the heart of the law. Another area they had done this was regarding taking oaths. Verses 33 and 34. Again, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, don't swear, take an oath at all. Now this law is a little tricky because the Old Testament law actually does suggest taking oaths. It does require you to swear on the name of the Lord in order to bind you to your word. But like the divorce law, the Pharisees had twisted this to be used in their own favor too. Instead of swearing on the name of the Lord, they would swear upon the city of Jerusalem or upon the hairs on their head. And then when they, they could back out of their promise, someone says, hey, wait a second, you didn't keep your promise. Oh, well, I swore upon the hairs on my head. And since they fall out about every other day, that's about as good as my promises. There's limitations on these things, you know. But Jesus reminds them that wasn't the point of the law. The law is about loving others, not getting your own. You shouldn't need to swear by anything. God gave that provision in the law, not because he couldn't be trusted, but because we can't, because of the stubbornness of our own hearts. But why can't you people just trust you when you say something? Why do you need to make a contract or swear by anything as proof of your trustworthiness? God's people should be known always for being true to their word. If it comes out of your mouth, you're bound to it. Jesus says later in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, you must give an account on judgment day for every idle word that you speak. Every word that passes through your lips is going to be brought forth on judgment day. James similarly writes in his letter, from the same mouth, comes blessings and curses. We use these same mouths to bring life and encouragement and help to people. And then we curse that person who cut us off on the highway with the same lips. My brothers, James says, these things ought not be so. Instead, righteousness demands we use our words to speak life and blessing to others. And the next law was also supposed to bring some level of freedom. 
to people, but instead became a source for fighting, a grounds for fighting. Verses 38 and 39. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not even resist the one who is evil. Now, this is a vital law in the Old Testament. The law of proportionate retribution, some say. It requires, very simply, as we enjoy in American society, that the punishment fit the crime. So someone with a vengeance couldn't get at someone they hate by requiring the death penalty for some minor crime. And on the alternate side, though, some rich, powerful person couldn't get a slap on the hand for a major crime. The punishment must fit the crime. This is a good law for social order, but the Pharisees had taken its application from criminal law and used it to guide their personal relationships. Here, the idea of being slapped on the cheek or your tunic taken from you isn't talking about assault or theft. If someone breaks into your house and beats you up and starts taking your things, you should let them beat you up more and take more. That's not at all what he's saying. This is more of an honor culture where the idea of slapping someone is just kind of a way of shaming them. And if they bring shame upon you, let them shame you some more. If they take your tunic, a way of establishing in court who is right and who has more honor in the situation, let them have more honor. Take my coat as well. Or if a beggar asks for money, as we saw, the Pharisees thought poverty was shameful, that you deserved that curse. So it was shameful for you, a person of honor, to stoop down and help them out of their curse. But Jesus says, no, help them. Jesus expects much higher from his disciples. His statement here isn't regulating a whole new civil law where Christians should just let themselves get beat up and trampled on and go poor from giving away everything. He's saying that whatever honor we have, be willing to give it up. Give always generously to others so that they can be honored with you. Let's not be so concerned about protecting what's ours, but work for the good of others. And finally, Let's look at Jesus' last correction in verses 43 and 44. You've heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now this is a little strange because nowhere in the Old Testament law are people commanded to hate their enemies. I said before that Jesus isn't taking direct quotes from the law, but these are things that people tended to believe at this time. And if you actually follow the trajectory of Israel through the Old Testament, you can see how Jews might have thought that you should hate your enemies. They were told to take care of one another. Those who were righteous and those who sinned and brought shame upon Israel were to be cast out. They weren't one another to be cared for. And then they are supposed to come into this land of Canaan and wipe out all the, the pagan, ungodly nations. So this must mean that you're supposed to hate those people who aren't like you, right? But Jesus corrects them by explaining that it's so easy to love someone when they're like you. The Gentiles could do that. Those pagan Canaanite nations can do that. The whole point of the law was so that you would stand out as a people, and the world would look at you and say, 
Who are these people that God is so near to them? Those who are of God should be able to do something far more incredible than love those who are lovely, but to love those who are unlovely, who are evil even. Really, the entire law is all about love. Every one of these laws could be simply summarized as doing what is best for your neighbor, doing best for those who God has placed in your path. Instead, the Pharisees use them for their own benefit, to get themselves ahead, to heap up honor upon themselves. And Jesus says, no, the demands of the law are so much greater. Which gets us back to our main point, summarized in the final verse. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees is infinitely higher than the greatest of the Pharisees. It's a righteousness that only God has, absolute moral perfection. That's what this law is pointing to. You should read this and not think, I can do that, or I just need to tighten up my bootstraps and try harder. You should read this and think, that's impossible. Who could possibly do that? And then realize that's the whole point of the law was to point us to who God is. So let's glance at these laws one more time with the idea that this is telling me who God is. How does God himself keep these laws? So consider the idea of how angry and hateful thoughts tend to create a path of murder. Alternatively, our thoughts of life and blessing can create encouraging life for somebody. And nowhere is this more true than in God himself. God's very words alive in himself. God's thoughts create the world. Our existence depends upon the will of God, the words of God at work. In his mercy, he speaks life to us. What about adultery? God has no desire for another bride. He gives all of his attention to his bride, the church, to his people, He does everything possible to love them. He even cuts off his own son to preserve his bride. And so he'll never divorce us. The Old Testament had laws, provisions, allowing divorce, God to divorce Israel if she was unfaithful. But there's no such provision in the New Testament. God promises by the blood of Christ that he will never leave us nor forsake us. He will keep his promise promise to keep us until the end. And who is more faithful for his yes to be yes and his no to be no? Who keeps his promises better than God himself? He may have allowed oaths in the past, not because of his unfaithfulness, but because of our stubbornness. But he doesn't need to swear to keep his promises. We can trust that he always keeps his word. Think also about the laws of retribution turning your cheek, letting someone slap you again, giving your coat, going the extra mile, generously giving to the beggar when he asks over and over and over. How foolish is that? Who would do that? That's just unworkable. That's because the law isn't about you. It's about God. Who has been more generous than God himself? Over and over we fail to trust him. 
and he still gives to us. Over and over, we take advantage of his generosity. We dishonor his name. We beg him for more every day, and he still gladly pours out his generous love toward us. Nobody loves more than God, particularly here, his enemies. God doesn't just love his own. If he loved only his own, he would love nobody but himself. He would destroy us all. But as Paul said in Romans 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. This is the hope of this entire passage of Jesus expounding on the law. We should be left asking, who can keep this law? Who could be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect? And the answer is nobody. Every single one of us is cut down. But he doesn't leave us there. Paul said again, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, God himself, became one of us and kept the law perfectly. He's the only one who can say, I kept the law. I am perfect as God in heaven is perfect. When we hear the Sermon on the Mount, we shouldn't be thinking, yeah, I can do that. We shouldn't go to one another and say, well, see here, this law says this, and I've done that, and I've done this good thing. And we also shouldn't be discouraged to think, ah, who, I should just give up. I can never do these things. Instead, we cast ourselves upon the mercy of God in Christ, saying, praise be to God. He provided his perfection for us in Christ, who kept the law for us. And Christ took our punishment for the law so that we could be perfect as our Father in heaven. Don't beat yourself up. Don't build yourself up over this law. Instead, turn to Christ as the one who kept it for you so you could be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. God, let us not be a people who are all about showing the world what we can't do being known for what we are against. But may your perfection alive in us through your spirit create life, life in us, life in our neighbors, life in our brother and sisters, life in our culture. Help us, even Redemption City Church, to cast a vision for the law of the Lord reviving our souls. God, we thank you that that's possible because Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf. He kept it because we could not. And now he lives in those who trust in him. Help us to trust in him that the life of your, your law, the love of Christ would be alive in each one of us. Amen.